another episode of the Agile Weekly Podcast. I'm Jade Meskill. I'm Derek Neighbors. I'm Clayton Langlesigich. And I'm Roy Vanewater. So guys, we wanted to talk about uh, what happens when you find yourself in the less than ideal situation. It's uh, never happened to me. <laughs> no, you're always in the ideal situation. Yep. Uh, that's good for you. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of you who aren't as awesome as Roy, uh, let, let's, let's uh, start with a hypothetical situation in that uh, you're working with a team uh, where the facilities uh, prevents them from actually sitting and working together. Just the way it's set up, the way uh, people are distributed, everything, they, they just can't physically be together. They're in the same building, but they can't physically sit together. Is that when it's time to work from the library or the local coffee shop? I mean, it seems to me like you can take a non-ideal situation and make it into an ideal one. Like, I, I kind of feel like a self-organizing team shouldn't let facilities get in their way. Hmm. And if a team is producing results and making things difficult facilities, I don't think any management out there is going to be like, no, no, we really got to break up this, this team. Even though they're performing, we, facilities is more important. Well, I think that's the interesting thing about facilities, though, is that um, you have like the entire org structure that the team is under or whatever, right? And then there's always somebody else that's entirely separate that almost never like is in that building that is in charge of the facilities people. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there's like this bigger group working together to solve some goal of like, you know, hey, our teams need a place to work together and they need to be able to sit together and you'd be able to go talk to the facilities people and say like, hey, how can we make this work? It's like that never happens. It's always the... The teams complain about not being able to sit together, and the facilities people say, like, hey, man, I'm just doing my job. i got to keep track of all these desks and cubes and whatever, right? And it always seems to get in the way. So, so I think there's a couple of things. Like, one is you can hack your way through, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about, Roy. Like, right. hey, you know, we can't figure it out. Like, let's go steal a conference room. Let's go somewhere else. Like, we're not going to let somebody stop what we're doing and i think that that's pretty practical most of the time um except for when you have to be on the network and so you can't go to the library because you don't have vpn access or something to the network or you're or, doing something highly confidential or, or you don't have conference mm-hmm. rooms or you don't sure. have laptops or other things right I, I think some of it goes to can you do baby steps to get there right so maybe you know hey can we pair or can we both squish in one cube maybe we can't all be in the same spot but can we get uh instead of me being totally siloed can i be near two other people or you know can we move to some part of the area where at least more of us are close maybe, proximity maybe work from the corporate cafeteria or something right i mean so i think there's some things that you can do that are kind of hey can we baby step to get there um to explore you know the benefits or start to show the benefits which then might help accelerate facilities issues or other you know pieces that are there but i think it's it's tough i mean uh <laughs> I think Clayton put it well is facilities don't give a shit about your team. Well, let's imagine it's not a person, right? right. Just the, the environment is not conducive to working together. Okay. Sure. <clears throat> so what are some other situations that you guys have found yourself in where you've had to uh, work around some something that's preventing your, your team from being as uh, performant as they could be? Well, I think one thing that I've seen is you get teams that have like big kind of old legacy nasty projects and they want to maybe try and improve their technical practices. And so I think right now if you were to go out and start kind of Googling around for maybe like TDD or BDD things, a lot of the things you run into are either technology stacks that are newer or they're using what seem like contrived examples. 
And so I think a lot of people get turned off where if I say, I heard about this BDD thing and I go Google for it and I stumble upon Cucumber, which is in Ruby, and then I get like upset that it's not in Java or whatever my language is. And yeah, you can go find that those things already, or those things have been ported or they exist in your language, but it doesn't feel the same. It's like it kind of takes the new and shiny off of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think in those cases, having to take the stuff that's new and exciting, but is, uh, and then kind of having to map it back to your like, the daily grind, I think, turns a lot of people off, and that's difficult to do. Yeah. I think one of the ones I see a ton is that the development environment doesn't ex- like a local development environment doesn't exist, a team development environment exists, and a test environment doesn't exist that actually mimics production in any way, shape, or form. And it's like it's so impossible to get to that because we don't have access to our local machines to install things or our machines are so crappy and old we can't install them or we don't have licenses to the software to install it or i mean the list goes on and on and on about why teams can't do that and they lose so much time um you know hey we're working together and we're doing something and we have to wait 15 minutes for something to compile on the test server so that somebody from tests can look at it instead of just committing in code and then letting them run it on their local machine, right? Or, or various things like that tend to be kind of these prisons that are non-optimal that it's not our fault. Like we have to talk to ops to deal with that or somebody has to order hardware or, mm-hmm. you know, something completely out of our control. So what are some simple tricks that you've used to at least help alleviate some of those problems? Um, so you usually... Um, one of the things that can alleviate it is usually you can get the local stuff done, right? And so it's like, hey, if you can just at least get to the point where everybody's got the full stack running locally in the same way, that cuts a lot of the problems out. At least you never have to wait for a server to be able to look at or do something. Um, I think the other things that we see all the time are go get rogue hardware, right? Like, you know, find a an empty cube that's still got a machine in it. It's slated for somebody who's not currently working there, pull it over to your thing and ask for forgiveness later when you turn it into your CI box or to your, you know, dev build box. Um, the chances are nine out of ten times nobody even notices it's gone. And when they do, it's like, wow, you know, okay, maybe you get yelled at for 20 minutes for well, that's it. That's why facilities hates everybody, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another one that I've seen a few times is when the developers, like the development teams want to deploy really often because they see deployment as a painful something. And by deploying often, they're hoping that they'll force themselves to make it better. But that marketing or sales or product owners, whoever, are not comfortable with deploying that frequently, either out of fear that the deployment process isn't rock solid or because they can't market in that way where they release regularly or it doesn't fit their business model. And one of the tricks I've seen to solving that is where they set up like an internal fake customer box that they deploy to every commit to like kind of practice the deployment that replicates production as close as possible so that um, when they actually do deploy to the pro- to production, it's something that they have done every day for the last however many days instead of that something they haven't done since last year. I think a big part of it is just believing that it's possible. So you know, like having a local environment, I think you can you can hear so many excuses and all like the self prison stuff. And and I think a lot of it is that people are wanting to ask for permission first for a lot of things. But a lot of times, you know, you tell them the story about like a GitHub or something where you know they hire a new person, they get a laptop and. 30 minutes later, they're committing to production. Mm -hmm. And I think to them, that seems impossible. But obviously, it is possible for some people. And it's all just computers and stuff. And you know that you can automate it. And you know you can make it work. And you probably aren't a special snowflake. So if you can kind of get over that hump of 
right. of thinking that it's impossible to do those things. I think that goes a long way. That's true. It's like the the typical like, yeah, we'd like to do that in a perfect world, but we have this limitation. It's like, okay, well, maybe that limitation is a problem that you can solve and you can be in this perfect world with the rest of us. I think another big um, example of like the non-ideal state is I would guess that a lot of people probably go get like say their CSM and they're in the training and they talk about the different roles and here's what the team does and here's what the product owner does and they go back to their office and the product owner really doesn't spend all of their time with the team and the you know they used to be a project manager so they have these other tendencies and half the team you know came from some other team and sometimes the other manager comes over and asks them to do work on this other project and there's all these things that don't fit into the roles at all uh, I feel like that's got to be a huge problem for a lot that of people. That would never happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right, and they come back and try to adapt everything to fit their existing business, rather like their existing corporate structure, right? So I could like, okay, well, I understand that Scrum is supposed to have a product owner that's present all the time, but we can't have that. So we're going to kind of do a, we're going to adapt it to meet our company's needs, and that'll make it better. Yeah, and I think in those cases, a lot of times you just have to you know, to some degree, just kind of buck up and say, hey, you know what, We in order to have a successful scrum team, we need to have, uh, you know, a, a product owner that has authority and has presence and can answer, the, you know, can be with the team. And that's mm-hmm. just how it has to be. And so we're not really going to find some way to kind of weasel around that. Um, as far as like the kind of hacks and stuff go, I don't know that there's a whole lot you can do other than basically just being real honest about what you have to do to be successful in that role. Mm-hmm. So, so as our, our role as coaches, um, you know, Clayton, you talked a little bit about just believing that it's possible. Uh, maybe let's, let's step back from the specifics and let's talk about our philosophy. How, how would we approach this, right? You, you show up and you walk into an environment that is so complicated, so convoluted, uh, that there are no simple, obvious ways to start to uh, make these type of improvements uh, to, to work a little bit more towards the ideal. Uh, how how would we start to approach and unpack that problem? Um, for me, I think that comes down to looking back at maybe some values and principles where maybe there aren't, you know, you're not going to be able to go in necessarily and find you know, a list of 15 things that they're quote unquote doing wrong. And if you fix those things, then they'd be better. But I think if you stick to the values and principles and you start observing some of their interactions and in the existing processes and you say, hey, you know, I, I think this one is kind of misaligned with what the values that we're trying to go for are. Um, at least getting to that like baby step of just exploring that possibility, I think that's probably a good first step. So I think you can start finding real small things to break things down. Um, I think you have to take those bigger problems and break them down into the smaller chunks. I think something that's important though is getting the the team that you're working with to actually believe that something like this is possible. Like I think you kind of alluded to that earlier, Jade, where. There are a bunch of people who have worked in these types of environments, these oppressive environments their entire life, and they think that something like a 10-minute build or, a, or an easy deploy or uh, testing before you develop code or any of those things are just impossible. And like that's, that, that really is an fa- unachievable fantasy land of perfection rather than like a real practical thing you could actually do. And I'm not quite sure how you could convince them that that reality can be true. So I, I think for me, like the, the way that I've been framing this lately is it's permission versus policy. And most of these organizations are really strong policy oriented and don't trust their people. And so for me, the first thing is, you know, whoever's asking me to be the coach, do they really believe in what they're doing? And if the answer is yes, I ask them for permission to give me latitude to really push the bounds Mm -hmm. of things. And I think that's the only way you can show teams that the culture is changing and that the system is changing and that they are allowed to have permission because more often than not, they've been slapped down so many times they are not going to believe it by default. 
<clears throat> and then it's a matter of taking every opportunity to deal with those civil disobedience issues where it's, you know what, I'm th- there's a server that's been sitting on that floor for the last five days. Nobody's touched it. Nobody can tell me what it's for. I'm picking it up. I'm making it the CI box. I will do that, and I will take all the heat for that as a coach, and I'm going to go tell the executive sponsor that I'm doing it. And if they say, you know, no, can't do that, I say, okay, great. We're done with this coaching engagement. You're not serious ab- about the change. Like, I'm giving you an out that you can blame me. You don't even have to say you know about this. And I find that when executive sponsors are serious and they say, like, okay, like, stuff tends to start to happen and unfold. They, they need that catalyst or that change agent to stand up for teams and stand up for um, change. And I think you have to know how hard to push, right? Like, I'm not suggesting you go in there, you just start, like, tearing everything uh, apart. I mean, I formatted this machine. I hope you, that was all right. Yeah, you know, I th- <laughs> that was our production server. <laughs> I, I, I think you, you have to kind of pick the battles and see where you can get the, get the most belief for the team. But then I think the team starts to push harder. And then pretty soon you kind of have that, that you really do have that civil di- disobedience going where, it gets harder and far harder for shitty managers to push back against empowered teams. And I, I, I think that that's kind of part of the goal is to get people to say, like, hey, we do have the power to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, hey, we'll be let go. But if we're making good decisions, like... Yeah, and I, I think I've seen teams where they they knew based on, like, the scrum rules that they were supposed to be able to dictate to some degree how the stand-up meeting went. But they would laugh about it every time. They hated the stand-up meeting because there was a controlling manager that made them do it a certain way. But to them, it was impossible. Like, there was no possibility of any change whatsoever because that one little example. Like, if they couldn't change the stand-up meeting, they couldn't do anything. So what's the point? I think that was their big barrier to even believing. Like, you could have convinced them that there are teams that have, you know, a 10-minute build and do CI and all this other stuff, but... Like, not in our world. It just doesn't exist. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's it for this week's uh, episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash Agile Weekly. And we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Thank you. Is there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to integrumtech.com slash podcast where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Integrum Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out integrumtech.com or subscribe on iTunes. Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile Hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.